Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series into Jonah. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Jonah chapter chapter two. Um, if you guys have found found this passage, let's pray together one more time here. Father in heaven, just um, thank you again for your grace and mercy. It's awesome to uh, see our our family engage in baptism this morning. And um, again, just pray for these these ladies who are baptized this morning in a really special way. As we look to your text, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, convict us where we need conviction. Um, let the, the truth of Scripture land on soft hearts, open ears, and open eyes this morning. We pray this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. If I, if I put a photo up here, raise your hands. You guys recognize this guy? Many of you know who this is. Somebody scream it out. Ty Cobb? Eh. Says, this is Cy Young. Uh, have you, any of you guys heard of the Cy Young Award? Baseball trivia for you just as we start this morning. Anybody know Cy Young's real given first name? A couple murmurings, not hearing anything. It's Denton True Young. Cy is not short for Simon like most people think. It's actually short for Cyclone because Cy Young had such a fast fastball. It came in like a cyclone, especially in his early years. Um, toward the end of his career, his, his bread and butter was his curveball. His arm wore out a little bit. Uh, 22 years in the majors. There's an award named after him, best American League, National League pitcher every year. Can earn the Cy Young Award. Uh, more than any other record, though, that Cy Young is known for and famous for is his complete games pitched. Uh, he won 511 games. And just to kind of put that in context for you, context for non-baseball fans out there, Nolan Ryan won 324 games. And he was an amazing pitcher. Cy Young has almost doubled this guy. Uh, the closest behind that as far as games won is 417. But the, the record that he's most known for is, is complete games. And What's interesting about this, through 22 seasons, Cy Young pitched 750 complete games. What's interesting is about 34 a year. That's a record that will probably stand for the rest of baseball history, because as you know, no longer are pitchers going the distance as much as they used to. They're doing pitch counts. If you're a great pitcher in the majors today, if you go six or seven innings, that's a good starting outing for a pitcher. Um, Cy Young has, has endurance. He has lasted the test of time. An amazing, amazing player. Now, what you see from major leaguers is you've got a starting pitcher, and then you've got your closers. The relief guys come in, and they close the game instead. And the reason why I'm mentioning this before we jump into Jonah is because we're talking about evangelism. And in this culture, and in this day, evangelism is different than it was when my parents grew up. It's different than when my grandparents grew up. And we're living at a time when not too many of us are going to have the ability to pitch a complete game in evangelism. 
It's going to be a very unique opportunity to meet somebody who's never heard the gospel before, share the gospel with them, and then experience and lead them to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Most of the time, that's not going to happen anymore. Most of the time, what you're going to experience in today's world is, is more like the image of the farmer. There's going to be evangelists that do the tough work of breaking up the soil, making it soft and pliable for the seeds. There's going to be other people that are planters. They share the gospel. We don't know if the person trusted Christ or if they, if they didn't trust Christ. There's going to be people that over and over again hear the gospel multiple times but never trust it. There's other people that water. There's other people that reap the harvest. And we get to experience that. And it's an amazing feeling experience if you've ever had the chance to do that. In a, a postmodern, post-Christian culture that we live in, people try Christianity like they test drive a car. They want to they feel it out. They want to get behind the wheel, they want to come into a church, they want to experience it for themselves. And it's probably going to take just a reiteration of the gospel over and over again before they fully and totally trust Christ for salvation. Jonah is, is really unique. Jonah delivers the gospel message, goes to the city of Nineveh in three days, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That's his message. And the whole city trusts God. Most of them probably had not heard the message of the God of Israel before. They end up repenting, sackcloth and ashes, and showing signs that they truly did believe in God. History is, is interesting, though, because it attests to some pre-evangelism that was taking place. What we know about Nineveh is that twice there was a plague in that city in the years 765 and 759 B.C. Six years apart, they had two massive plagues that went through the city. There was a total eclipse that happened on June 15th, 763 B.C. A lot of people think that Nineveh was really primed for the gospel. Hearts were soft there, despite who they were and despite the characteristics of them that Jonah knew and didn't want to go and preach to them. The reality is, is that God was softening the soil the whole time. Jonah just got to reap the harvest. Now, Jonah chapter 2 is, is the most famous chapter in the book. This is the book where the great fish comes and swallows Jonah and spits him back out on dry land. And this is the image that's ingrained. This is the story that's sensational that we believe. When anybody says the book of Jonah, this is what we think about. And I know what you're thinking. Jared, you've got a master's degree from Dallas Seminary. You know great and wise things that other people just don't know. Do you really believe this story of Jonah? And first, let me just say, yes, I do believe that it was a, a real historical story. Because mainly, I believe in another miracle called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if somebody can die and raise from the grave three days later, I can believe a lot of other things in the Bible without a hard time really at all. Uh, but second, this isn't even the close closest to the first miracle in Jonah. When you start, if you're just coming with us in Jonah, go back and read chapter 1. You can catch up really quickly. God caused a violent storm on the sea when Jonah's ship left the harbor. That was a miracle. 
God caused a lot to fall on Jonah when the sailors were frantically panicking and wondering on whose account has this storm come upon us and the lot fell to Jonah. That was a miracle. God calmed the storm when Jonah was thrown into the sea. That was a miracle. You've got at least three, four, I mean, calling a fish to come and swallow Jonah, that's a miracle. Preserving his life for three days and three nights in the belly of fish, miracle. Coughing him up back on dry land, another miracle. And chapter two, is, it's amazing for everything that we're reading and all these miracles that we see happening. But it's not even close to the most impressive miracle of the story, which is melting the hardened hearts of the Ninevites and Jonah too. We can assume that God melted his heart. Before we get to some, some details of the text, I want to take a, a step back and just look at the big picture to see where we're at in Jonah. Uh, whereas chapters 1, 3, and 4 are narrative genre in this book, chapter 2 is poetry. It's unlike any other chapter. If you look down, actually, Jonah 1, verse 17, I'll read this verse quick. So the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. If you just stopped there and skipped over to chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. You could, you could pick up the story very easily. It's, it's seamless to go from 117 to 210. But instead, we've got these verses, this whole entire chapter, that's an obvious shift in genre and style. And so here's what's happening. When we come to this text, any Hebrew reader of the Bible, any listener to this story would know the narrative is not moving forward here. It's coming to a drastic and dramatic pause. What we're supposed to do when we come to Jonah chapter 2 is, is slow down, stop, consider, and contemplate. What is God going to do to the Ninevites? What about his, his mission, his call to Jonah? What about Jonah? What's going on in his heart? Everything is is happening pretty quickly in Jonah chapter 1. When you get to Jonah chapter 2, it's like it starts going in slow motion. We're supposed to look at the details of this text and enter into one man's experience as it applies to the rest of the book. All right, so look down at, at chapter 2. I'm going to read through um, verse 6, just the beginning of verse 6 here. Jonah 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. And at the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me, Jonah says, forever. Now, these verses that we're reading in this entire chapter, they sound a lot like a psalm. If you read over half your psalms in the book of the Psalter, this is exactly what they sound like. In fact, we know that from the elements in Jonah chapter 2 that this is probably a thanksgiving psalm. Now let me just ask you a quick question. Knowing what you know about Jonah, the reluctant prophet who tried to run away from God, are we expecting a thanksgiving psalm from the belly of the, of the fish here? We are not expecting this at all. If you, in fact, 
all the types of the Psalms, if you were to put them on a spectrum. On the one hand, you have the lament Psalms on this side of the spectrum. These are the most common. This is kind of the, uh, the mother of all Psalms is the lament Psalm. On the other side of the spectrum is the thanksgiving Psalm. And in between all of those, you've got um, king Psalms, you've got imprecatory Psalms, you've got a lot of other Psalms that uh, in their genre, they just kind of shift according to their pieces and their components that are there. From Jonah, he's not thankful. He's outraged. He's outraged at God's call, and he's trying to run from it. And yet, we see all these elements of a Thanksgiving psalm that are right there. A summary introduction, a report of a crisis, deliverance as an accomplished fact. That's the unique element to a Thanksgiving psalm. And then you got a conclusion or a summary, usually in the form of a vow or a sacrifice. You saw that not only in chapter 1 with the sailors, you see it here, chapter 2 with Jonah. But second, I want you to look at this initial summary, because this is indicative. Um, look down at verse 2, saying, I called out of the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 2 is a complete description of Jonah's salvation and deliverance experience. And again, when you compare the Psalms, this is almost verbatim of what you're going to see over and over again. Look at Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried out for help. Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. Jonah chapter 2, verse 2 is almost an exact replica, as well as many other verses in this chapter, to many of the Psalms that you'll read. But remember, the Psalms were Israel's prayer book. Individually, for the community, they would read these, they would sing these together as they worshiped God. Jonah is a prophet who is well acquainted with his spiritual heritage. He knows the Psalms and he knows them extremely well. Do you find it ironic that while Jonah can readily quote the Psalms beautifully, he cannot apply their truth personally? Do you find it ironic that he is quick to quote Scripture, but he is also quick to run away from God? J.F. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. Interesting experience here from the belly of the fish. At least one thing Jonah has fully grasped is found in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Who cast Jonah into the sea? Was it the sailors or was it God? The answer is yes. It was actually both. Jonah is coming to some hard realizations about who God is and what God will do to relentlessly pursue his image bearers and to achieve his mission for all of creation and for all of history. Uh, we were up at Wisconsin recently for a, a family member's wedding, and I've got a family member that's going through a tough time. One of their uh, kiddos is, has got some health issues, and we're sitting down talking with them and just kind of listening to their story a little bit um, as he was recollecting just some of the things they've, they've gone through to, uh, to try to help, to try to identify what was happening. 
And the comment that this person made went something like this, said, you know, Jared, we're, we're praying heavily that, that God is going to do something here and that something is going to change because we know that God wants to heal everything. Everyone and every ailment, God ultimately wants to heal. And that's true. There's very good truth to that statement, but we need to be extremely careful with it as well. Martin Luther used a German word to understand situations like Jonah's going through in chapter 2 here. It was called infectum. Our greatest English translations are something like contest or, or challenge. When Jonah is, is going through a, this challenge with God and with his mission, he describes it as a, Luther would say, a, a strange work, work of God in which a sinner is experiencing the delicious despair. And through that, they learn to trust only in God. Here's what Luther says. Insofar as it, infectung, takes everything away from us and leaves us nothing but God, it cannot take God away from us and actually brings us closer to him. You've, you've heard this quote on the screen behind me. You never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Jonah is going through experience of, of pain. He's going through difficulty. He's crying out for his life. And the whole while, God is using it to bring him to an end of himself so that at the last, he will look up, he will reach out to his only source of true salvation, which is God, God himself. God really does want to heal he pursued Jonah to heal his heart. He pursued the Ninevites to heal theirs and bring them to faith. But before he can raise Jonah to the heights, he will take him down to the depths. Before he can show the Ninevites his amazing grace, he will also show them their terrible pride. Jonah becomes a, a representative of Nineveh in many ways, experiencing the severe grace and mercy of God. One pastor put it this way, said the usual place to learn the greatest secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. The usual place where we learn the secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. Now, the structure, I want to talk just a little bit about um, the poetry in chapter 2. You're not going to be able to read all these words. just couldn't get them on here so they'd be legible for everybody. But the whole chapter of Jonah 2 is orchestrated in its overall structure as two chiasms. It's two stanzas. Everything moves to the middle. So verses 1 through 6a a is the first stanza. The second stanza, we're going to pick this up and at the end of verse 6, and it'll take us all the way through verse 9. What you'll notice about this structure, though, is you'll see some mirrored patterns to it. At the beginning and at the end, more than anything, you'll see references to the place that Jonah is driven in the belly of the fish. In fact, the text calls it Sheol's belly, and then when you get down in verse 6, calls it the base of the mountains. The base of the mountains I had descended. The location is key because this is where Jonah cries out to God. In verse 2 and in verse 5, you've got these references. In an ancient Near Eastern culture, what you need to know is that death was very mysterious. People didn't understand death. Their experiences were cloudy. It was hazy. It was kind of a netherworld. Most people thought of death 
even in the Old Testament Bible, but also through ancient Near, Near Eastern cultures, most people thought of death as an oblivion. It was a netherworld, a place where you went, where you just kind of wait and see what happens, almost like an existence of, of nothingness. At the very least, in this first stanza, Jonah feels like he is at death's door. He's about to die, and he's knocking on that door incredibly loud. After being brought lower and lower, here, Jonah not only called out to God, verse 2, but he cries out to God. And that cry out is a, it's a peel stem in the Hebrew. It is very intensive. It functions to communicate a plural action. He was crying continually. He was crying loudly over and over again out to God. And God was, God was shaking Jonah out of his comfort zone. Jonah was complacent before he was convicted. And in this situation, he finally gets his attention. God is after his heart. And he will do anything and everything to get to his heart. Something to consider in evangelism and, and something to consider for personal relationships, just even in your uh, Christian life. When it feels like God is killing you at times, those actually might be the times that he's saving you. In our Christian life and with unbelievers, I find the, a really great place to talk to them about the gospel and comfort and hope of everlasting life in Christ is when they're going through really difficult times. And when it feels like God is killing us, those are actually the moments that he's using to save us from ourselves, from certain situations. Number two this morning. Evangelism is often a gradual process more than a quick decision. Evangelism is often a gradual process before it's a quick decision. Look down at your text. Let's pick this up in the middle of verse 6. And if you have a highlighter or you underline in your Bible, I would highlight this phrase. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And then again, if you highlight or underline in your Bible that last phrase in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the high point, the climax of the story. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Remember, Jonah worships the God of the sea and the dry land from his own testimony in chapter 1. The narrative has taken us from the call on dry land, Jonah has gone to the seaport at Joppa. He got into the boat, and he went to the sea from there. He was in the belly of the ship where he sleeps. He gets thrown into the chaotic sea where he sinks. He finally lands in the belly of the fish where he goes down even further and further. The sea here is, is probably indicative of some other internal things that are going on in the life of Jonah. The sea seems to represent chaos, evil, disorder, maybe even death in this context. The dry land represents order, life, obedience, uh, fulfilling the mission of God and the call that he's given upon Jonah. All of this begs a comparison between the ship that took Jonah away in chapter 1 and the fish that took Jonah away in chapter 2. When you look at those two things in, in narrative, uh, we compare these things all the time to understand the text a little bit more. 
In the ship, Jonah paid the fare to go. Traveling by fish was absolutely free. In the ship, he slept deeply. Nothing could awaken him. In the great fish, he's alert the entire time. He says very little. He's quiet at the bottom of the ship until the sailors talk to him is, is when he finally talks to them. But in the great belly of the fish, he's praying. And he's quoting the Psalms. The ship is an instrument that aligns with Jonah's rebellion. It took him further and further away from God. The fish is an instrument that aligns with Jonah's return and trust in God. And it takes him closer and closer to where he should have been the whole time. And the biblical language in the Hebrew fleshes this out even more. Um, in Hebrew, you would say biblical Hebrew is a, a gendered language. The, most languages have masculine, feminine, and neuter nouns. Hebrew, you've got two options, all nouns. They're either masculine or they're feminine. All right, so when you read about the belly of the fish, uh, turn back to 1 verse 17. It says, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That noun for fish is masculine. When you skip over to chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. All of a sudden, the noun turns feminine. There's a feminine ending on that noun that really stands out in the text. And it's startling when you think about it. The, the fish didn't change. The text changed. And it did so for a very good reason. But the difference between the belly of a fish being masculine and the belly of a fish being feminine is a pretty big difference because when you talk about a feminine belly, what you're actually describing is a womb. Masculine is, is totally different than that. What's happening in the text is that the fish started out as an agent of discipline, judgment, condemnation for Jonah. By the time you get to chapter 2, it shifts and it becomes an agent of life instead. Here's, what, here's what's happening in the story. Jonah gets the call from God. He runs, he disobeys, he goes the exact opposite direction of where God wants him to go. He gets thrown into the sea and the fish swallows him as an act of divine judgment and discipline of God. So much so and, and so horrific is this experience that Jonah thinks he's about to die. All of a sudden you get to chapter 2 and this very same instrument that brought judgment, discipline, and condemnation becomes an agent of life, a symbol of life, of new beginnings, of a fresh start. Do you know anything else in the Bible that when you look upon it, both judges and condemns on the one hand and gives life and salvation on the other? The cross of Calvary, right? On the one hand, people look upon the cross. If they don't believe in Jesus, they're judged and condemned. On the other hand, for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, it is a symbol of, of new beginnings, of hope, of life eternal. Uh, remember Jonah 1, chapter 2, it's, it's two stanzas. Both are chiasms. Here's the end, the second stanza. And whenever you, whenever you see these, I put this in black text so you can see it on your screen. You pay attention to what's in the middle. Everything is kind of drawing our attention there, but also pay attention to the things that are mirrored on the ends of this as well. 
Jonah chapter two, verse six at the end is the turning point of the story. Everything hinges on this one single solitary phrase. Then you restored from the pit my life, O Lord my God. Everything changes right there. And what's interesting about this in Hebrew, it's a monocolon, is what you would say. In Hebrew poetry, we have lines, we have stanzas, we have, we have colons. And typically, you have parallel lines in Hebrew. You have a line says something, and then there's another line right after it that says almost the exact same thing, just in a different way. There is no parallel line to this statement in Jonah 2, 6b. It stands out. You restored from the pit my life. There is no parallel line to the last line in the stanza. It stands out. Deliverance belongs to Yahweh. What is Jonah chapter 2 all about? Deliverance belongs to God and to God alone. There is no other God of salvation except for the Old Testament God of the Bible who brings salvation and deliverance. It belongs to Yahweh. It belongs to the Lord. Right in the middle, you see verses on God's presence, right? Jonah's voice came into the holy temple of the Lord. Wasn't that the very thing that Jonah was, was running from? The presence of God? The turning point, of course, is the beginning of, uh, or the end of verse 6. The climax of the story, this monocle, and at the end of the story, deliverance belongs to the Lord. Everything about it still reminds us of a, of a thanksgiving psalm. And so, let me just redirect for a second here because out of this great Jonah chapter 2 psalm, we're going to see some interesting things here that begin to make us kind of wonder about Jonah and wonder about his heart. If I told you a story about a great flood where people were experiencing the wrath and the judgment of God and one day the, the floods subsided and, the, and a person persevered and overcame the floods. What, what's the immediate story that would come into your mind when I talk about that? Everybody's thinking Genesis, everybody's thinking Noah and the great flood, right? Jonah chapter 2 very much recalls the flood narrative of Genesis. Right in the middle of, of that narrative, the whole entire flood narrative is structured like a chiasm, just like you're seeing on your screens. In the middle piece of the chiasm of the flood narrative in Genesis is a very important, short, memorable phrase. Everything stopped. The water stopped. The rain stopped. The flood began to go back down. When this one phrase in Genesis comes out, it's Genesis 8, verse 1, and it says this. It says, but God remembered Noah. Everything else shifts after that. It goes from chaos, judgment, to life now, and again, to new beginnings. Look down in your text, Jonah chapter 2. Look down at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you. This is the, this is the first point in the text where we begin to question Jonah's repentance, and let me tell you why. The salient point should be that God remembered Jonah, not that Jonah remembered God. The most important piece of his repentance is coming to an end of himself, not being able to do anything on his own accord, God doing everything for him, not 
I remember God, but God remembered me. Additionally, notice what the text does not say. This prayer is actually void of any uh, personal confession from Jonah. He doesn't acknowledge any personal wrongdoing in the entire chapter. It lacks in its individual confession. On top of that, you've got this really weird verse 8. If we look at this, we kind of say, like, what is that doing in there? This whole thing has been about Jonah, me, my, I, first-person pronouns, references throughout. All of a sudden, you get to verse 8, and it says those. You're now we're third person. Who are the those of verse 8? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who is Jonah referring to when he says those is the question. I want to give you what one commentator says about this. I'm going to read this slowly. The narrative context of the prayer suggests that Jonah is referring to none other than the sailors of chapter 1 in verse 8. And in support of this conclusion is the mention of sacrifices and vows that conclude both accounts, chapter 1 and chapter 2. The commentator continues, in his prayer, Jonah contrasts the sailor's response to Yahweh's mercy to his own response to Yahweh's mercy. Jonah experiences the salvation, the grace, and the mercy of God in an unbelievable way. And right in the midst of it, he thinks about the sailor's response. He concludes that they're still idolaters, while his response is so much better, so much more holy, and his heart is in a much better place than their heart. At the end, yes, Jonah experiences the miraculous saving of his life, God's deliverance and mercy, but his heart towards other people, towards the Ninevites, towards the sailors is still hard. God's got a lot of work to do with him. So what do we do? What do we do with Jonah chapter 2? Real quick point here. I've shared this with you before. That which is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. The things that are shadows become substance in the New Testament with Christ and with the truth of the gospel. Look down again at at chapter 1, verse 17. I want to bring attention to a little phrase here. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is a journey of three days described by the narrator, described by Jonah, uh, we believe, in this, in this poem. And you see this period of time at very strategic places in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Genesis 22 is one of the first places. Abraham and Isaac and the donkey go to, let to Mount Moriah to sacrifice to their God. And it was a journey of three days before they get there, before Abraham sacrifices Isaac. Redeemed Israel from Egypt. Once they're delivered from Egypt, they wander around the wilderness. It's before they come to water, it's three days. Transpire. Three days, they have no water in the desert wandering until Exodus 15. They finally get there. Look at this verse in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we might live in his presence. In many ways, Jonah's journey of three days and and three nights is a journey from death to life. And it's not the only journey from death to life that we've seen in the Bible. 
Matthew chapter 12 actually talks about the religious leaders. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, give us a sign that you really are the Messiah, that we might know it's you. You guys uh, get your hamstrings stretched out here. The soccer's coming up. Remember what Jesus said? No sign will I give you except for the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the grave for three days and three nights. Jonah took a journey from death to life that's fulfilled in another journey from death to life through Jesus on Calvary's cross. He was literally killed. He literally died, and he was buried in a grave for three days and three nights. And on the third day, he rose again to everlasting life. He was condemned, and he was judged, and he was a recipient of God's wrath, but therefore God justified him looking upon his sacrifice as the final payment for sin and raised him to newness of life. Aren't you glad that the Bible depicts a Savior, Jesus Christ, who took a journey for us that we don't have to take? He took the journey to death, and he was brought back to life. The baptisms that we just did are, this, are a symbol of death to life through the gospel, through the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you do not know this message, you too will take a journey that will end very differently than Jonah's journey and then Jesus' journey. But if you do know him, you will experience life and life eternal. The journey from death to life over and over again is the heart of the gospel. It is the truth of what Jesus did for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Number two, acceptance. We've talked about this too. Acceptance of Jesus, believing in him for everlasting life, is also ipso facto acceptance of Jesus' mission. Acceptance of God's mission for the nations. That when you become a believer, you don't get a pass on what God is doing for the rest of the world and in creation. If you accept him, you also accept the mission that he's given us to make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them everything that he has taught us in the Bible. I wish you could go back and do this. We don't have time. But if you went back and you read Exodus 15 in the Old Testament, you would see 19 key words or phrases used in Exodus 15. It's a song of Moses that celebrates the deliverance of the Red Sea at the Red Sea crossing. You would see 19 technical words used there that are also used in Jonah chapter 2. In fact, there is such a close correlation between the imagery, the words, and the language in Exodus 15 that most people believe that Jonah is picking up that story when he tells this in Jonah chapter 2 with his own story. It talks about the deep, the roots of the mountain, the weeds, 19 common technical vocabulary words through both accounts. Almost every commentator believes that there's a, there's a, a comparison, a, a partnership of these two chapters in the Old Testament. In Exodus... Israel went from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai and then to the land of promise. And Jonah, Jonah went from the sea to another mountain, to the base of the mountains, and then to rebellious Nineveh after that. Jonah's rebellion is inconsistent with Israel's larger narrative and what we experience and what we see in the Exodus. 
Israel experienced salvation that they might be a light to the nations, that they might declare the excellencies of God, that other nations would see them and be drawn to the truth of who God is. He was the one true God of heaven and earth. Israel experienced salvation that they might be a light to the nations. Jonah experienced salvation, and his heart was still hard toward the nations. That was a problem. I want you to, I want you to do something, and we're going to leave this just on this note before I pray for the food and, and go out to the picnic. I want you to do something right now before I pray and close. If you have a pen in your hand, if you've got pages at the back of your Bible, I want you to just write down three names of people in your life, in your family, relationships, coworkers, people who do not know Jesus personally. I want you just to write their names down in there, and I want you to, for the rest of this sermon series, we're going to go for the next several weeks, I want you to commit to praying daily for those people. And a prayer is, is going to sound something like, Lord, I want you to please soften the heart of this person in my life. Bring them to an understanding of who you are and the truth of the gospel. And if it's, if it's through me, God, I will be pleased to do that. Give me the strength and the courage to do it. If it's through somebody else, God, just please redeem this person for everlasting life and begin praying for them. In that way, this, this pre-evangelism starts taking place. The ground gets broken up. The soil of the heart starts to get softened to the things of God through prayer. And then I want you to grab one of our September prayer calendars that's out in the lobby, and I want you to pray every single day for the prayers that are associated with evangelism for the month of September. And I want to hear stories from you. I want to hear the times of, of who you're praying for, and throughout this, this next month, if one of those people that you're praying for trusts Christ, email me about it. I want to hear about it. I want to be able to share those stories with our community right here at TBC so that you as a Christian would not only be saved and enjoy the benefits of the gospel for yourself, but that you as a Christian are not only saved and delivered by God, you are on mission with God. And you won't do the things that Jonah did, but you'll actually be a faithful servant the very first time, calling you to be a part of being a light to the nations. All right? Please do that for me. Uh, Jared at TulsaBible.org and I'll share these stories. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, giving us this, this great, vivid picture of a death-to-life journey that Jonah experienced. And we know, God, that the things that are shadows and substances in the Old Testament are just clearly revealed in the New Testament. And the journey that Jonah took was just a foreshadowing of a, a much deeper, a much harder journey that you took when you took on the wrath of God for our sins. We thank you that you lived a perfect, sinless life. We thank you that you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We thank you that because of your sacrifice and being raised to newness of life three days later, that we can have everlasting life through you. I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know that message, that they would talk to one of us, that they would hear that, believe it right where they're sitting right now, and trust you for everlasting life plus nothing else. God, we pray for the food. Thank you for a, a great time that we get to experience as a church family, community together, and have some fun after church today. 
Uh, just keep us safe and healthy and well um, as we engage. Um, give us great conversations. Help us to get to know one another at a deeper level. We pray for the food. We thank you for those who have prepared it, for the hands that have, are serving it. Lord, we just thank you so much for them as well. And uh, we ask that you'd bless it. And it's in the name of your Son and by your Spirit that we pray for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.